Well, good morning, Fellowship family. It's really good to have you. Merry Christmas. Uh, this, this past week, we had the opportunity not only to send our Haiti team to Haiti. They are there. They handed out over 70 goats that you purchased. So thank you. We also did affordable Christmas over at the High Crest neighborhood. Had many families come, and this is the wrapping room. We had uh, gifts throughout a room that people could come and shop throughout the day and uh, buy gifts at really discounted prices that they had made like a Christmas gift uh, several weeks before. You went out and uh, purchased those, brought them. Well, they came and went shopping on, uh, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday, and uh, purchased those items. One lady I was talking to on Thursday came in. She just had tears in her eyes. She said, man, I I really told my girls we're not going to be able to have anything for Christmas this year. And due to this, it's the best Christmas we've had in gifts. So thank you so much for your generosity. Again, we're not just giving gifts. We're reflecting the greatest giver of all who gave his son, Jesus, the greatest gift to us. The greatest gift for us. And then this week, we're going to be looking at the greatest gift with us. Jesus is the gift of God with us. That's exactly what Matthew, how Matthew introduces Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me to verse 23. This uh, prophecy from 700 years before Christ was born by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7 of Isaiah is shared in Matthew chapter 1. And it says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. Those three words, God with us, change our reality. And they're familiar to say around this time. And it can be lost in the hurry and the busyness of Christmas. I don't think I've made it through a Christmas series without doing specific messages on this, these three words, God with us. But the reality is they really meet a a tremendous need in our lives. There's a great fear in all of us that we'll be alone, that we'll be isolated, that we'll be unattached, even worse, unloved. And so the the reality that God is with us through Jesus, uh, it, it comforts some of our greatest fears in our relationship. Now, many of us pray this, don't we? We pray, God, be with me today as I take my test. God, be with me as I talk to this person. God, be with me as I go on this trip. God, be with us as we celebrate time together as a family. And here's the issue. The scriptures boldly proclaim that God is with us. There's never a time he's not with us. And and the reality is, is although we can pray that we're really just kind of redundant we don't may not really understand and the and the reality is is god is with us god's everywhere he's omnipresent the scriptures kind of shout where can i flee from you david says how can i escape you and and the reality is is god is with us so stop praying for god to be with you and start living in the reality that god is with us now I don't want to be the prayer Nazi here, okay? I'm not going to be someone who's listening. Oh, I shouldn't have prayed like that. But maybe you can tweak your prayers a little bit. God, I know you're with me. So remind me of your presence this week. Remind me of your presence, that you are with me. God, you're with me and you even went before me. That's okay to pray. (laughs) But start living in the reality that God is with us. 
You know, so many people think we'll be with God for heaven, in heaven forever. It's like 1 Thessalonians verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 17 says, and so we will always be with the Lord. But right now we're, we're assured by the scriptures that the great promise of God, he's with us all the time. Some people think that death will be a, a, a cold reboot of life. And really what the scriptures are going to share with us is that it's actually a continuation. Eternal life begins now. It, it continues now. So live in that reality that God is with us. Now, my message over the next uh, several minutes are really about these three words. God with us. That's my outline. So if you've got those three words, don't forget them. Uh, we, we're not going to go home because I still have some things to share with you about him. First one is this. Jesus is God. That first word. You know, the integrity of the gospel account in the Bible is that it's historical. It's reliable. It's remarkable. As I've studied it, it stands the test of scrutiny. And it's not to say that it shares us everything there is to know about God or even that we can understand everything there is to know about God. But I have found them to be reasonable and reliable and I accept that the account as truth. And so as I accept it as truth, what does the New Testament account say about Jesus? Who was he? What does it say about who he was? Well, Genesis 1, and Genesis 1 starts out, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, a New Testament account of Jesus in John chapter 1 begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and here's the statement, because it's very clear, the Word was God. Who is the Word? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. We find this out later in in chapter uh, 1, verse 14, where it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of of grace and truth. Now we're going to come back to this verse, but just for right now, that word who was there in the beginning, Jesus, the creator God, took on flesh and dwelt, took up residence with us here. Jesus is it's clear in the scriptures that he is shown to be God. But what did Jesus claim about himself? Jesus claimed in Luke chapter 5 verse 20 when when some friends brought a crippled friend and one who was sick before him and, and, and they were so eager to see him, they cleared out the roof and, and the clay tiles on a roof and lowered their friend down. And as Jesus saw that, he said this, he saw their faith. He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Wow. Your sins are forgiven you. Some of us came from a background where maybe a priest told us your sins are now forgiven as you confessed them to them. But you know, the scriptures don't give man that authority. The only authority to forgive is God himself, because that's who we're accountable to. We offend God when we sin, and so therefore he has to forgive us. And you know what? Jesus' enemies, his skeptics, knew exactly who he was claiming to be. Only God can forgive sins. And they freaked out. That's my paraphrase. Scriptures don't say that. But they freaked out. And they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Later in in the book of John, Jesus claims, look at this claim. I give to them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. In verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. That's an exclusive claim. Look at this. I am God, basically. And, and his enemies got it. His enemies got it. Those who were most skeptical about him knew what he was claiming because they picked up stones 
to stone him. I was in Nazareth in May, and I remember going up to the Mount of Precipice, that place where Jesus was, uh, it, before it was Jesus was teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he read prophecy, and he closed the scriptures, and he said, today this is fulfilled, and he made a claim that he was God, and look out, look out, they rushed him up to that Mount of Precipice, and they wanted to throw him over it, but he basically disappeared in the crowd. See, everyone knew who Jesus claimed to be. He claimed to be God. But you know, just because you claim to be something doesn't necessarily you are that person. Over the course of my ministry, I've met two people who've introduced themselves as Jesus Christ. That's kind of, I go, hello? You're kind of taken back by that. And usually someone or their friend or family member kind of goes like, yeah, there he goes again saying he's Jesus And what they realize real quickly is that their character doesn't substantiate their claim. So what was Jesus's character? Well, it's really clear in the scriptures of who he claims to be. The one in his inner circle named Peter, who denied him, but then became one of his greatest followers, says in 1 Peter 2.22, it says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Paul, perhaps one of the greatest promoters of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who literally killed Christians before he believed. He was so against the person of Jesus that he killed all, tried to kill all the followers and stomp them out. But he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he said, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you know that claim that he was making? The character of Jesus was sinless so that when Jesus died on the cross for you and me, that's sinless sacrifice, perfect sacrifice took on our sin on the cross and paid the price fully and finally for our sin. His character was flawless. He was perfect. But you know what the the Bible also shows about his followers because uh, we think about those first century believers who followed Christ and advanced this gospel. And we wonder, oh, the world right today, is, it would be so resistant to this. It wasn't like that. People were superstitious, superstitious. They had an underdeveloped sense of reality. They believed the world was flat. They were so uninformed. We are enlightened. And we are, I mean, if we're uh, kind of flippant with this, we know better than they would have. They kind of believed a lie that was going around about Jesus. But what was their disposition? What were those followers like? And if we do the research and you're honest, you'll find that they were resistant. They were resistant to the identity of Jesus. They were resistant that God would ever squish himself into flesh And live with us and talk with us. Because God was holy. There's no one like him. Why would he ever come to be with us? And they believed it with such a spiritual fervor that when Jesus claimed to be, they wanted to snuff him out. Certainly not tolerant in their resistance. And so the reality is, it was to that resistant world that Jesus proclaimed who he was. His followers, like Peter, would say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. His followers, like Peter, when he preached after the resurrection of Jesus in Acts 4.12, he says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven 
given among men by which we must be saved. See, this is the Jesus who is God. Jesus is God. But Jesus is also with. With. This is the second word I want to kind of look at. And, and, and uh, this, this whole picture of Jesus being God with us. As John introduces in John 1, verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This same word that took on flesh has shown us the Father. He's God in the flesh. Now, Timothy Keller, in one of his messages on God with us, said that Jesus took on flesh to take away the terror of God. Boy, it's an interesting observation, isn't it? Keller goes and looks at the Old Testament manifestations of God's presence. When God showed himself to people in the Old Testament, you got Moses, burning bush, you know. Whoa, it's not being consumed. He got down, he took off his shoes, and he worshipped at that point. You have the children of Israel being led by a pillar of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire in the evening. You have God speaking to Moses, and literally the glory of God shone through his face, who had to wear a veil over it. You have God speaking through lightning and thunder to Job, a whirlwind, a a tornado to, to Job, and And what do we have in the New Testament? You have a baby. God revealing himself as a baby. And most of us are not terrified by babies, right? And I know some of us, it's about firstborn, we're terrified what's going to happen. But that's not what happens when you receive a baby. You go, oh, look at this. You know, when I was presented with each one of my three little boys, I just went, what a gift. You want to get near it. You want to be with it and hold it close. This is God in the flesh. Jesus took on flesh to take away the terror of God. We can be with God and no longer be terrified. We can love him. We can, we can celebrate life with him. But Jesus also revealed the righteousness and grace of God. Look at this in verse 14 of John chapter 1. It says, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father. And look at those two words, full of grace and full of truth. God is perfectly balanced in those two things. And that's Jesus. He knows the truth about us, but he chooses to love us anyway. Jesus loves us, and there's nothing we can do about that. That's who Jesus, he shows us who God is, because he is God. But Jesus also gave up his life to give us salvation. In Titus chapter 2, and we read this in our journal this week, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, the scriptures are raising up our God to be Jesus Christ. It's clear. It's simple. Jesus is God with us. He gave up his life for us, for our salvation. But he also now is with us and teaches and guides us and and calls us away from the things that destroy us and to the things that build us and grow us in him. 
I love what John Stott in his little book. It's about that thick and it's, it's called Basic Christianity. It's a great presentation of Jesus and a call to respond to him. But this is what John Stott says. He says, many people visualize a God who sits comfortably on a distant throne, remote, aloof, uninterested, and indifferent to the needs of mortals. Until, it may be, they can badger him into taking action on their behalf. He writes, this view is wholly false. The Bible reveals a God who long before it even occurs to man to turn to him, while man is still lost in darkness and sunk in sin, he takes the initiative, rises from the throne, lays aside his glory and stoops to seek until he finds. What what a great description of Jesus who left his throne to be with us. God with, let's look at this last one, us. This really answers the question, who, for whom did Jesus come? And the answer is for us, for us. Jesus is, is the one who the scriptures call us to respond to because we have a great need. Let me show you again, Acts 4.12. Peter writes, and there's no salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must or by which we must be saved. There's two ways to read this passage. For those of us who understand our condition of sin, it's we just see the last four words and we go, we must be saved. But there's others of us who might be skeptical and might be cynical about the presentation of Christ. And we read it like there's no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. This is kind of an exclusive claim about Jesus. We love an inclusive God. And you know what? God is inclusive. As you read the New Testament, I see an inclusive God who says, whosoever believes. We don't see a God requiring spiritual gimnastics for us to measure up or reach a place where our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. No, you see a God who leaves his throne of perfection to come to an imperfect, broken, fallen world and give himself up for us. See, we have an issue with this exclusive claim. And I've talked to a lot of people and they've shared their thoughts with me. And you know what? It, it's, it can be easy to think like God's so narrow. I mean, we like a broad road to God. Well, and, and it's only through Jesus. It sounds so exclusive and you sound so arrogant. You sound so self-righteous like you have the answer and everyone else doesn't. But all I can say is once we truly understand our condition... It changes the way we view our salvation. Let's just take an illustration real quickly. Your appendix. Uh, Your appendix is about that little. And that appendix, when it gets inflamed and when it ruptures, all of life breaks through, right? How many of you have ever suffered with appendicitis? Okay, you know the pain. If you're a man, you now know the pain of childbirth, okay? It's just, you just crumple over and it's all tense and you go into the doctor and they do the scan and they go, ha ha ha, it's your appendix. And you go, that little thing is causing this much pain. And they go, but we, you live in the best time in the history of humanity for us to take care of this. I have done a hundred appendectomies this past year and it's only February. This is a very common thing. 
I can take care of it surgically or laparoscopically. It's no big deal. Put you out, you wake up, and you will feel better. And you go, oh, that sounds so exclusive, though. You got to do surgery on me? Can't you just shout at my appendix? Behaled. No, won't that work, Doc? You go, well, this is, it might, but most of the time we need surgery. Doctor, I have some herbs. They are wonderful herbs. Can you just rub them on the outside so you don't have to be so invasive on that? And the doctor goes, hello? Or doctor, I'm thinking if we all just dance around the room a little bit and, you know, if we can do that, then I might be healed. The reality is he has to go in he has to do the surgery, and the surgery is a game changer. Go, oh, thank you so much that you had the truth about what was happening with me. And secondly, you knew what to do about it, and I feel so much better because of it. On one side, you go, boy, the doctor is only giving you one solution. Why doesn't he give you multiple ones? On the other side, you go, holy smokes, when you're in that much pain, you'll take that solution because the solution works. Folks, we must get to the point where we must be saved. We cannot save ourselves, and only Jesus can save us. It sounds exclusive until you realize your condition, because the requirement in all of our lives is to be perfect. And for that, Paul writes in Romans 3, all have sinned, all of us fall short of the glory of God. Folks, we're not here touting something that we deserve. We're not here doing something because my life is better than your life or better than people outside of here. We're here because the ground is level at the cross. We all need Jesus. He's offered us the greatest gift and we receive that gift. Can I just invite you, if you haven't done so right now, to humble your life. You see, that's who's most open and, and even as you read this Christmas story, it's a really, it's an invitation to those who understand their condition in life, who humble themselves and they trust Jesus to do something for them that they can't do for themselves. Would you do that if you haven't yet made that decision? To, to confess who Jesus is, Jesus, your God, and then to trust in what Jesus can do for you. You can save me. Salvation's in no one else's name except you. I trust you. I believe you. If that is you, you now can have a life that celebrates the presence of God with you. With you. See, all the other religions of the world say, you got to be good enough. You got to do this. You got to make yourself right before you can be righteous. And biblical Christianity says, no, you can't do that. You must have Jesus, the righteousness of God, do that for you. And it's not in going to church. It's not in putting money in the offering. It's not serving in ministry. It's trusting in what Jesus has done for you. By faith, would you just right now say, Jesus, you are God. I believe what you can do for me is what I need. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Thank you for, thank you for restoring me back to God. And if that is your heart, welcome to life with God. We want to know who you are just so we can come alongside you because as you take your next steps with God, we want to be there and encourage you. We want to give you some life-giving resource to do that. So let us know by just tearing out that, that card on the bottom of your worship program and, and give that to someone in the information area there. We'd love to help you as you start your first steps with God. So now that you have God, 
And for everyone else here who believes in Jesus and has trusted his work in their in their lives. How do we live? How do we live in the reality that God is with us? If we're to stop praying for it and start living in it, what should our lives look like? Well, I want to direct your attention to the last book of of Matthew, last last chapter of Matthew. In chapter 1, we saw that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. In chapter 28, the last chapter and the last verses, I think Matthew was intentional. He's going to tell us that God is with us. And he's going to show us a call. It's the Great Commission. It's the mission we do as a co-laborer in Christ. We do this together. This is why the church is here. This is why we're here. It says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I, here it is, I am with you always to the very end of the age. See that promise? We're called to live it. So what does this life look like? Well, according to this passage, number one, it's a life without boundaries. Boundaries exclude God. Boundaries keep God out and you in. And a life with Jesus is a life without these boundaries. You see, Jesus is the creator God who left the glory and the throne of God to be with us. Life without him is a godless existence. We don't realize when we just don't live with that recognition. But it's godless. And we put up excuses of, I wish I had more time to be with him. But in reality, we find the time to do anything we want to do. It's amazing how little you can make for you to find the money to buy a new release on iTunes or a new app or a new video game. We find the time and resources to do anything we want to do. And yet Jesus left his throne to be with us. What are we doing? See, that's what Christmas is. Christmas is an invitation to be with Jesus. And so we as this church, we need to claw away. We need to redirect our attention and remove the distractions so that we can be with Christ without boundaries, without walls. Secondly, a life with Jesus is a life without limits. There are limits we place around Jesus. About how much he can have of our lives. You can have this far. And right now this far is one hour a week. It's called Fellowship Bible Church. That's putting a limit around Jesus. But if Jesus would be with us. Not only in this room. But when we leave this room. See that's that's the reality. What's going to happen in just a few minutes. If I stop speaking. Is, is that you will be scattered all around this region. But who goes with you? Jesus does. Yeah, there's never a time. So so don't put the limit around Jesus that it's just about what happens in here. You go out there and live and take that. That's why you will go and make disciples of all nations. No limits. People look like different than you. People who believe differently than you. People who act differently than you. We're to make disciples of all nations. Because here's the deal. Jesus is not just an addition to your life. He's the source and center of your life. He's an identity. Don't limit his power. Don't limit your purpose in this world. So maybe a better question of practicing a life with Jesus 
is this. What would you be willing to do if you were completely convinced that by doing it, God would be with you? See, that's where the church dreamed in the New Testament church. We are confident he is with us. We can take this message to the end of the earth. If you're confident Jesus is with you, there is no stopping what he can do through you. Take off the limits and live with the presence of Jesus with you. Finally, a life with Jesus is without hesitation. What's your response to just this simple first word of that passage we read in Matthew 28? Go. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't say, stay? (laughs) Just stay. Make your seat comfortable. It's all about you. This world is all about you. And you know what? Fellowship needs to have more cookies because you were shorted today. Just stay. Soak it in. Don't go. No, that's the message of God with us. He says, go, go to the ends of the earth, go to all nations, get out of these doors and go and live a life with me wherever I send you. John Stott says there's three responses to Jesus as you look at the New Testament account. The first one is people heard him, his message. They saw his claims, They even saw some of his miracles, but they walked away. They didn't want him. They didn't want his life, which would make their life uncomfortable. They were embarrassed. They didn't have the courage to follow him. So they walked away. The second group of people, they heard who Jesus was. They were unmistaken in who he claimed to be. They even saw his character, but they hated him. And they wanted to kill him. And they thought when they did kill him that they had succeeded. But there's a third group. And this third group, when they saw Jesus, they heard his claims. They saw his character. They understood who he was. They worshiped him. They bowed down and they said phrases like this. My Lord, my God. They understood who he was and they followed him. So why is it when we hear of Jesus and we hear the truth of who he is, that we would ever be lukewarm in our in our reception of Jesus. What would, be, what would work within us that would measure our response to Jesus and hold back and be hesitant? See, that's not reasonable. It's not. I know you go, but Joe, that's biblical. That's, that's Christianity in the United States. Yes, it is. And that's normal. But it's not godly. It's not, if we're honest. And it's not rational. It's not logical once you know that Jesus is God, Jesus is with us, and Jesus will save us. That's not rational. Around this time, it reminds me of a story of um, handing out presents in our home. And um, when the kids were little, I didn't really have a boundary on this. And so we go, okay, open up the presents. And all the paper would go all over and in 45 seconds, Christmas would be over and the kids would be out playing and Cheryl and I would look at each other and go, wow, we didn't really have a great Christmas time. So we kind of slowed things down and we had it where each person would open up the gift before and, you know, and thank the giver, you know, express Thanksgiving. It was a good thing we did when we were, they were little boys. And now that the guys have grown up, we still do that. So we were going around last year and people were getting their presents in and thanking. And all of a sudden, 
we got uh, cards from a relative out of town. And James opened up his card and in it was a Best Buy $50 gift card. He goes, awesome. Wow, this is great. And Jack opens up his card. Oh, another $50 Best Buy card. This is awesome. And Nate opens up his card. And for some reason, there wasn't a $50 Best Buy card in it. So we actually had to read the card. You know what I'm talking about, right? And on the end, it said, peace on earth. That's exactly how I read it. Peace on earth. Hey, he closed the card. And there was this awkward silence. Is there something stuck to it? Is there a hanging chad? Where, where is this, this gift card that you expected, but you only ended up with peace on earth? Huh? And so whenever we open a Christmas card and the family's around, I always go, huh, peace on earth. (laughs) It's our family joke that now you all know. Now, the out-of-town relative realized this and sent in February. We celebrated Christmas again in February for Nathan. But it just shows us, you know, when we're looking for something else and we really see Jesus for who he is, you know, there's a tendency in all of us to be hesitant and go, huh, peace on earth. Folks, peace on earth is God with us. Those are the most powerful words. Jesus is the greatest gift. Claw away whatever distracts you. Settle down whatever hurries you. Turn away from whatever is getting in the way so that you can like the shepherds, like the wise men, like Mary who treasured up these things, you could worship this Jesus, God, with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize your presence with us. Now, would you help us to start living in the reality that God is with us? Lord, take away these boundaries that we have placed in you. Take away the limits we have placed on you so that we might explore, that we might seek. And when we find, may we without hesitation worship you and live with the confidence, live with the power, live with the truth and reality that you are with us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.